has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen. We come to think about uh, those passages that Deb just read to us a moment ago. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus has indeed, as we have just sung, paid it all. So that those who are your people, those who have put their trust in him, know freedom from the penalty of sin. And yet as we think about the sin that lingers in our world and the provision that you have made for dealing with it in the here and now, Lord, we pray that you would be with us by your Spirit. Help us to understand these things and help us to live accordingly in ways that are pleasing to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Politics. Politics. The art of guiding or influencing governmental policy. That's how uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary uh, defines politics. Uh, Or perhaps you prefer the Cambridge English Dictionary. Yes, they've got one as well. Uh, They say that politics uh, uh, constitutes the activities of government or people who try to influence the way a country is governed. Politics. It's a bit of a Marmite subject, isn't it? Uh, People tend to either love it or hate it. Uh, It's the kind of subject that you either can't get enough of or you can't get away from it quickly enough. I wonder which of those camps you'd put yourself in. Well, like it or not, politics plays uh, an incredibly important part on all, in all of our lives, doesn't it? It has a profound impact on all of our lives, sometimes for good and sometimes, sadly, for ill. But what does the Bible have to say about politics and about government in particular? How do we... Think biblically about government. Uh, I wonder whether any of these questions have ever come across your mind as you've pondered uh, life as a Christian, uh, if you are a Christian here this evening, and, and government. I wonder if you've ever thought, how does the authority of an earthly ruler impact on me as one who is a subject of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? As someone who is part of the heavenly kingdom, how how do those authorities relate to one another? Uh, Or maybe you've uh, wondered, should we expect governments to legislate in line with the truths that we find in the Holy Scriptures? Should we expect that? To what degree should we expect that? How realistic is that? Well, those are the kinds of questions that we're going to be thinking about today. Uh, I hope it should be fairly obvious from the off that we can only really scratch the surface of this today. Uh, And if this is a topic that at the end of the sermon you're not completely fed up with and want to get away from politics as soon as possible, but you want to think a bit more, uh, I'd really heartily recommend this book to you. Uh, It's by a guy called Jonathan Lehman. It's called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. And it is really excellent, and I I really commend it to you. So uh, if you want to have a look at it afterwards and look at uh, chapter titles and all that kind of stuff, you'd be very welcome. Okay, let's get into it, uh, shall we? Um, We need to set the scene. Why are we talking about government when we're in Genesis 9 and thinking about the flood? 
uh, we, we've seen, haven't we, over the last few weeks, we've been with Noah as he's passed through the judgment of the flood. We've been with him as he's been saved from that in the ark with his family and those who were with him. Uh, but last week we asked the question, well, okay, what next? What now for mankind in this new world that's been wiped clean by the, the judgment of the flood? And we saw a, a very, uh, not the complete answer, but a very profound and deep answer to that in verses uh, 1 and 7 of chapter 9 of Genesis. And if you've closed your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up again. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 1, God says to Noah, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And again in verse 7, so kind of brackets around this whole uh, passage we read God says to Noah be fruitful increase in number multiply on the earth and increase upon it this is what uh, theologians sometimes call the cultural mandate yes it's a, a command if you like from God to mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and that involves hopefully obviously having babies but as we thought about last week it actually involves much more than that It involves all that we might do to bless humanity and to cause other human beings to flourish, to build a society and a culture that is a blessing to mankind and enables us to be safe and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Anything that we do to that end is helping work towards fulfilling this cultural mandate. And so whether it be having babies or Uh, Maybe, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily put it on the other end of the spectrum, but as we were thinking about this morning with Andre, playing saxophone to the glory of God and to bless other individuals. Those things are working towards uh, fulfilling this cultural mandate. Now, uh, those of you who know your Bibles uh, reasonably well will know that there are some strong similarities between this mandate that's given to Noah and to Adam back in the Garden of Eden. But this is not Eden is it? The world of Noah's day, even after the flood, the world that we live in is not Eden. Um, A a guy called Sam Renahan, uh, I think quite helpfully, puts it like this. Uh, He says, if I can find the slide, here we go. He says, the kingdom of creation, uh, that is the, the world we live in, the creation that we live in, of which God is the ultimate king, is a common cursed kingdom of common grace. It is a common cursed kingdom of common grace. Commonly cursed because of the fall of mankind. Because of Adam's sin. We live in a world that is constantly affected by sin and corruption in the human heart. It is full of corruption and violence as, um, as we've seen as we've gone through this story about Noah. And very tragically we've been painfully reminded of that this past week, haven't we? With the events that have taken place in Israel. And Gaza. I'm not going to say anything particular about that today, other than to say, if that's something that you've been thinking about this week, uh, and it's something that you want to begin to get a handle on how to process, I really commend uh, Gareth's sermon from this morning to you. I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that if you weren't there this morning. I think it was very helpful in uh, helping us begin to think about that issue. Uh, But it is a reminder, isn't it, that though the world might have been wiped clean in the flood, the human heart was not. And the corruption of the human heart means there is still violence in this world. And so there is a tension between uh, the desire to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the inevitable violence that hinders that 
cultural mandate from taking place. It is a common cursed kingdom, but, as we saw last week, it is also a kingdom of common grace. Because God has determined to preserve this creation. He's preserving it, as we saw last week, in three ways. Uh, through, uh, through provision, uh, through protection, and through a promise. And last week in particular, we thought about that promise, that covenant that God made with Noah, uh, not to judge the earth in the way that he had done before, to withhold his judgment until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, to enable mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why did he do that? Well, because as humanity fulfills that mandate, that leads ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom and the age that we live in now, in which his kingdom is being built as we build the church, so that ultimately one day there may be a new creation, a creation that is free from sin and pain and violence and suffering. And don't we all want that? So that's uh, the context, that's the background. But in that context, how is God going to protect people? Okay, how is God going to protect mankind from the corruption of the human heart, from the violence that mankind wants to perpetrate? Well, we see that, don't we, um, in protection from people. That's what we're thinking about, uh, particularly today. We see that in uh, this passage that's before us. At least we see the seed of it here. Look down at verse 5. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every, and I will demand, uh, sorry, from every animal and from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. How is God going to protect mankind? Well, he is going to do it by introducing just consequences for crimes against humanity. Do you see that here? Just consequences for crimes against humanity. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Now that most obviously is dealing with the crime of murder, and we can see how that militates against being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. But actually this here is the seed that will grow throughout the scriptures and develop and, and become a, a whole set of principles for crime and punishment. All sorts of crimes against humanity, whether it be uh, theft or, uh, or, or anything else that might uh, militate against human flourishing. So, the question is, what are the principles that are in seed form here that we see develop? As we go on, how is God going to protect people from human sin and human violence that hinders our flourishing? Well, here are three principles that we see in uh, this uh, little tiny verse here in verse 6, uh, the first part of verse 6. First of all, all people deserve justice. All people deserve justice. Do you notice that? Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. No one escapes justice for sin, or at least they shouldn't. They shouldn't get away with it because they're wealthy enough to employ the best lawyers. 
They shouldn't get away with it because they're so powerful that they're above this law. They shouldn't get away with it because they were born in a certain country and not a different one. All people deserve justice. And we've seen something of the development of this, haven't we, in the mornings if you're around. Um, If you think back to the first sermon in the series in Isaiah, what was God's big criticism of the leaders in Isaiah's day? We read this. He says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God demands justice for all people, not just the few, not just the elite, but for all. That's the first principle that we see here. The second we see is this. My clicker works. There we go. Punishment must be proportionate. Punishment must be proportionate. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Uh, Someone once said, the fitting punishment for a crime is found within the crime itself. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Justice, a punishment that fits the crime. Now, uh, if you are familiar with Genesis, you'll know that 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 has been a big problem uh, in Genesis before this point. Uh, Listen to this. This is what a guy called Lamech says. He's a descendant of Cain. uh, And he boastfully says to his wives... Ada and Zilla. Ada and Zilla, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Friends, that is not proportionate punishment, is it? Here is a man boasting of the fact that someone injured him, and so he killed them. He doesn't just want a just punishment that is proportionate. He wants vengeance that is 77 times what he experienced. And that is the problem of the human heart, isn't it? We don't want justice, actually. We want more than that. We want people to suffer who've caused us pain. And that is a problem. And so God says here, that justice should be proportionate. And we see this idea develop as well in the scriptures. Uh, We get this in uh, the book of Exodus, um, as the law of Moses is being uh, set down for God's people. And this is what we find in the case of one person injuring another. Do you see this principle worked out? If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, in our culture, that seems maybe a bit barbaric and unpalatable, but do you see the idea? It's proportionate. If someone takes someone's life, it is just that their life is taken. Now, we might not do that in exactly the same way of literally taking their life, but we do take their life away in the sense that we put them in prison and we lock them up and throw away the key. That is the idea, that the punishment is proportionate. We could debate that, but we'll move on for now. (laughs) Okay, so, first principle, all people deserve justice. Second, punishment must be proportionate. Thirdly, punishment 
This thing's not working very well, sorry. There we go. Punishment should be for crimes committed against man, not against God. Did you notice that? Have a look again at verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. There is nothing here about crimes committed against God. Is Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords? Yes. Does he deserve to be honoured and worshipped by every human being that has been created? Yes. Is it the job of human beings to enforce that? No. No. It's not our place because that is not a crime against us. That is a crime against God and he is the one who will ensure that justice is done in that area. And friends, we know, don't we, from the history of the church that when we get this wrong, that this can go terribly wrong. We cannot make people convert to Christianity at the point of a sword or at the end of the barrel of a gun. We do not have the mandate to do that. We cannot do that. We know that. It is a work of the Spirit that will call someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot impose this on people. Uh, At its worst, when we get this worst, most wrong, uh, we end up even harming one another. Let me read to you something pretty shocking that uh, some of us in the men's book group read recently in a book we were reading. All told, there were probably more Baptist martyrs in the 16th century than Christian martyrs in the first three centuries of the church prior to the conversion of Constantine. Let that sink in, the author says. More Christians were killed by each other over baptism during the Reformation than were killed by the Roman Empire for their faith in Christ. That is appalling. And that is wrong. Because if we get baptism or any other doctrine wrong, yes, that is a crime against God. And yes, it's something that we deal with in the church. But we do not have a mandate to deal with it in this way, with violence, with punishment of this kind. So, three principles for crime and punishment. All people deserve justice. Punishment must be proportionate. And punishment is to be meted out for crimes against humanity, not against God. Okay. Next question. Who does this? Whose job is it to do this? Well, we've seen, haven't we? It's very clear. It's not God's job. Not in the first instance. He will ultimately ensure that justice is done on the last day. But he is not saying here, whenever the blood of man is shed, I'll zap them with a lightning bolt. No. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. This is our responsibility. This is something that God has given over to us. But wisdom, and as this develops in the scriptures, we see that this becomes the responsibility of governments to do. Governments have a mandate to make sure that crimes against humans are punished. And that is where we come to passages like Romans 13, and I'd encourage you to flick forward again to that passage, that second reading uh, that Deb brought to us. Uh, 
Look at what Paul says about governments here in Romans 13. Let me read to you from verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's pretty clear, isn't it? God is the one who establishes governments and kings and ruling authorities. And so, verse 2, those who rebel against governments are actually rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, why? What is, what, what, what is a government to do? Well, look at verses 3 and 4, and do you see how this is a fleshing out of what we see in seed form in Genesis 9? What are governments to do? It's their job to reward what is good, to commend those who do what is good. That is, what what, uh, works towards the cultural mandate, human beings being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and flourishing on it. And they are to punish those who do what is wrong, those who work against that. That is their job. And so, verse 5 We are to submit to those authorities, not just out of fear of punishment, but also because of our conscience, because these authorities have been instituted by the Lord. How does Paul apply that? Well, uh, perhaps, I don't know how you feel about this, but he certainly applies it to taxes in verse 6. But I think it's really interesting on how else he goes on to apply it in verse 7. We are to show respect and honour to those who are in authority. And let us just note that this is not on the basis of whether or not they're doing a good job of ruling. No, this is on account of the office that they hold, the God-given office that they hold. And if you want to see this in action, I think there's a, here's a brilliant example from the life of Paul himself. Look at this. This is uh, from Acts 23. Uh, we read... He's before the Sanhedrin, okay, the ruling authority in uh, Jerusalem in his day. And we read, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, My brothers, it's a respectful way to start, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that that I be struck. That doesn't sound very respectful, does it? (laughs) A first instance, okay? He's, He's saying, you are not acting justly, and you should. But look what happens next. I think this is fascinating. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And what does Paul say? Well, maybe if he acted like the high priest, I'd treat him like the high priest. No. No. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I wonder if that's a bit of a challenge and a rebuke to some of us as we think about the way that we may have spoken about uh, world leaders, maybe our own leaders, 
They are worthy of honour and respect from us. Not necess- not, I mean, it would be great if they were worthy of it because they were doing a good job, wouldn't it? <laughs> but actually they're worthy of it just by virtue of the office that they hold, having been appointed to it by God. Okay, I think at this point there are probably a whole host of questions swimming around in your heads, and so I'm just going to try and address a couple of those now. You might be saying, okay, Ian, this is great, but what about when the government is bad? What do we do then? Okay, is this like unconditional obedience to whatever tyrannical government is, happens to be in power in our day? Well, no. First, let's have a think. What, how do we define a bad government? Okay, what makes a government bad? Well, one way to define it is by asking the question, are they doing what Genesis 9 and Romans 13 say they should be doing? Are they protecting mankind so that they can flourish, so that the cultural mandate can be carried out? Are they rewarding those who do what is good and punishing those who do what is evil? And we could ask that question in any number of areas, couldn't we? We could ask, is the government legislating and acting to protect human life, particularly the lives of the most vulnerable in our society? Are they doing that? Or are they not? We could ask, does the government legislate to protect marriage as the Bible defines it? Because that is the most basic element, constituent part of human society that enables us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is the government doing to protect marriage? We might ask, do they seek justice for all people? Not just the wealthy, not just the powerful, not just the people who happen to be born into that nation. But are they seeking to do justice for all people? And is that justice proportionate? Is it in line with the crime committed? And we might ask, Does this government allow for religious liberty, freedom of conscience in worship? Or is it a government that seeks to mandate a particular form of worship? Those are some questions we might want to think about as we decide whether a government is doing a good job of what it's supposed to do or not. Okay, what if the government's wrong? Do we have to obey then? Well, no. Certainly not if what they are asking us to do causes us to sin. Because there is a higher authority who must be obeyed first and foremost. And we see this, don't we, in the life of Daniel uh, and his friends, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego. Uh, I won't go into uh, too much detail retelling the story, but essentially in their day, the king says... You pray to me and me alone. The king says, you must bow down and worship this image of me. And what did Daniel and his friends say? Well, the king's been instituted by God, so we better obey him. No. No, in that instance, they say, what can we do? We cannot but serve God. And so we will disobey. But notice, friends, sometimes 
We may have to do that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that happens, there will be consequences. And we should expect that. There were for Daniel and his friends in his day. And there are for many Christians the world over who seek to be obedient to God in the face of governments that would have them do what is not honouring to God. And we need to be realistic about that. Okay, thirdly, finally on this. You might be thinking, how on earth do I square this with what Jesus says about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? Have you thought about that? Let's just have a look. Oh, sorry, it did work that time. Thanks, Tim. You go back. Thank you. Okay, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, very famous. He's one of these biggest teaching opportunities. He's there and he says, you have heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And he goes on in the same vein. Now what do we do with that? Is Jesus saying, yeah, you heard that in the Old Testament, but actually I'm telling you something different? Well, no. Because what we need to understand here is the context. Who is Jesus talking to here? Is he talking to a think tank whose job it is to work out how crime and punishment works in Jerusalem in his day? No. Is he talking to the religious leaders, or uh, to the, the government of his day? No. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who follow him. Those who may be tempted, when they are wronged, to respond in retaliation. And to us, he says no. That is not how you are to behave. When you are wronged, you forgive. When you are wronged, you forgive. But that is not how governments are to operate. And so let me say, if you are here at Christchurch Harpenden and you commit some hideous crime against somebody else in Christchurch Harpenden, if you are repentant, even if you're not perhaps, you can expect to be forgiven but you can also expect to be punished by the authorities. And again, churches have done untold harm to people when they fail to reckon with this. Churches have a responsibility to report crimes against people to the authorities because that is not our domain to deal with. That is for the police and for the government to deal with. Okay, there's a lot more we could say on that. But time is running out and we need to move on. Let's get to some final applications, shall we? Uh, Two questions as we close. Why does this matter and what do we do about it? First of all, why does this matter? It matters because, we go back to the beginning here, good government lays a foundation for kingdom building. Okay? When a government does its job well, when there is peace in the land and freedom for Christians to express themselves and speak the truth, that is a good foundation for building the church and for building Christ's kingdom. That is why this matters. Uh, You may have heard this quote before. This is from uh, a second century church father, a guy called Tertullian. He said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Have you heard that before? Okay, the idea is when people die for the gospel, 
that becomes the seed that will grow more Christians. And sometimes, in God's mercy, that has been the case. But quite often, when people are persecuted and killed for their faith, that is not what happens at all. It is a disaster for the gospel. Uh, Let me uh, give you an example from the 14th century, a guy called Tamerlane, who was a Mongol conqueror. Uh, This is from a book, uh, this is from that book I waved around at the beginning, this here. Uh, Tamerlane's armies, persecuting Christians, killed around 17 million people. That was 5% of the Earth's population at the time. Historian Samuel Q. Moffat wrote in his book, A History of Christianity in Asia, Tamerlane swept the continent with the persecution to end all persecutions. The wholesale massacres that gave him the name of the exterminator and gave Asian Christianity what appeared to be its final fatal blow. Now we know in the grace and mercy of God that that was not the final fatal blow for Christianity in Asia, but it set it back for hundreds of years. We must not uh, be triumphalistic and celebrate the persecution of people as if that's uh, a good thing. It's not in and of itself. Good government makes for peaceful nations which lays a foundation for kingdom building in the church. Finally, what should we do about it? Five things. We need to pray don't we? This is what Paul calls Timothy to do. In 1 Timothy we read, I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants what? who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see the connection between good government and peace and the spread of the gospel? We need to be praying for our leaders that they lead wisely, not just in this country but across the world. We need to obey as we're able the authorities that God has instituted in our land. We need to, it doesn't quite rhyme, does it? Lobby, lobby. We do, as we have opportunity, we need to lobby for the government to lead in ways that are wise and which will enable human flourishing and the cultural mandate. We need to be prepared to disobey if obedience would, result, would cause us to sin against God and we must be willing to suffer the consequences if we do that. And finally, we need to make the most of today. Brothers and sisters, we live in a land of astonishing peace really, in the big scheme of things. And that gives us a wonderful opportunity to be building Christ's kingdom. So let's not waste it. I've gone on much longer than I should have done. Thank you for listening. Believe it or not, I actually cut two whole points out of this sermon and it still ended up being 35 minutes, so I do apologise. But hopefully that's been helpful and will be useful for you uh, as you seek to honour the Lord and think about how you relate to the government. Let me pray as we close. Gracious Father, we thank you that as you promised Noah all those years ago,
you have withheld your judgment and you have preserved life on the earth. You have laid a foundation for human flourishing, for us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Thank you that that has led to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross to to deal with sin once and for all. Thank you that you preserve the world today, that we might build your kingdom here on earth, that you might do that through us. Thank you that Jesus is coming back again to bring the new heavens and the earth where there will be no more suffering and no more pain. And we thank you for the provision of governments to promote what is good and to punish those who do evil. And Lord, we recognize that even the best of governments is not as good as it should be and the worst of them fall far short of that. Lord, please, because of that, we pray for the governments of this earth. Please help them to do what is just for all people. Please help them to do what is right. Please help them to promote the things that are good and punish the things that are evil in a way that is just and proportionate. And Lord, we pray all of these things so that there might be peace and that your people might spread the wonderful and glorious news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks, Ian. Well, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together now. Uh, This table is for anyone who is looking to Jesus and is believing and trusting in him. And if that's not you, you can just pass it along as it comes to you along the row. Because communion doesn't make anyone a Christian. It doesn't make anyone a Christian. It's a celebration, a remembrance of all that he has done, as we have thought tonight, that our blood should have been shed, but his was instead. We'll be taking bread and then the cup, which is grape juice, one after the other. If those who are serving would mind coming up to the front row over here. Uh, Let's pray. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean, by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're now going to pass uh, the bread around. Uh, There is gluten-free bread available in the smaller cups. We'll um, keep the bread and then eat it together once everyone has received. Thank you.
the body of Jesus Christ given for you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, after supper took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're now going to pass the cup around. As before, please do keep it and then we'll drink once everyone has received. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <coughs> Almighty God, we thank you for feeding us by faith with the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him we offer you our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen. Amen. Well, as the musicians kind of, uh, come up, we're going to finish our time uh, together in the service by singing uh, about the immortal honours uh, that 